that people need to understand that venture capital is jet fuel. Okay? It is jet fuel. It is a product. That product works with a certain kind of vehicle. Right? If you take jet fuel and put it into, you know, a Maruti Swift, you will blow that fucking car up. Okay? If you take jet fuel and put it in a Lamborghini, you will still blow that fucking car up. If you put it in a plane, it flies. Hey everybody, what's good? Welcome back to the Next Move podcast. And if this is your first time on the show, we're a podcast that share the strategies, stories, and tools of people who are making an impact in India so that you can go ahead and make that same impact for yourself. And today I have Mark Khan with me, and he's the founder and managing partner of Omnivore, a venture capital firm who's specifically focused on investing in the ag tech space. And I'm so excited to have Mark on for a few reasons. One of them being his story is incredibly interesting. He is someone who's moved from the US to India to actually make an impact. And I want to learn why is that? Why would someone go from, you know, what's seen as the promised land to India to make a change? And two, um, I've, I've never actually had the opportunity to talk to a venture capitalist for a long conversation. So there's so many things that I want to learn about the life of a VC. There's so many stakeholders involved. There's the startups. There is the investors who are investing into the company. And then there's the actual VC itself that has to grow. So how does one manage, prioritize, and actually build on that? And three, I really want to learn about what does a VC look for when they're investing in companies and how do you weed out the good from the bad? So Mark, without further ado, I'm so happy to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on here today. Awesome. So let's let's get started with your story. Like I was saying earlier, you moved from the U.S. to India. Can you can you talk about why that is and and how that came about? It's complicated and 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 long, but I, I would say the uh, <laughs> the origin story is pretty simple. Um, I I grew up uh, in in Houston, Texas. Um, more or less next to a large Indian neighborhood and uh, of, of, of Indian immigrants, of ABCDs and their parents, and um, was always fascinated. Uh, Houston is a, a very diverse city, um, but it's, it's largely a city of immigrant enclaves, kind of similar to Queens, New York, frankly. And um, I guess, uh, you know, had a lot of Indian friends. I was good at math. I was a good student. And, and so had lots of, um, you know, Indian American kids um, that went to school with me and sort of got beyond that superficial interest in the culture and genuinely started learning about it and, and spent time with these kids and their families and was really fascinated. And, and so when I was a teenager, um, you know, went to India as a, for the first time, absolutely loved the country, kept going back, kept going back. So I'm sort of a lifelong Indophile. Um, I didn't necessarily think it was going to lead to me living there permanently um, or, um, or anything kind of career-wise. And then prior to, to business school, I, I worked 
um, in, in mostly in politics, frankly. Uh, but got exposed to agribusiness at that time and got fascinated with it and decided I was going to make a career out of it. So when I was at when I was at business school uh, at Harvard, decided to kind of merge these two interests and interned with with ITC with their agri division and uh, absolutely came away fascinated with the sheer scale, scope, and complexity of, of Indian agriculture. And largely have been working in that ever since. So uh, coming out of, of B school, I joined Syngenta, where I was focused on emerging markets, including India. And then in 2007, got involved with Goldridge Agrivet, the agribusiness arm of the Goldridge Group, which would, at the time was going through a, a restructuring and a turnaround. And moved to moved to Mumbai, and you know the rest is history. Spent six years at at Goldridge as the first Ferrang and this massive, you know, Indian corporate, this kind of middle-class Indian corporate, had a chance to work across various agriculture and agribusiness value chains, animal feed and nutrition, poultry, agrochemicals, oil palm, bunch of stuff. And during the tail end of my time with, with Goldridge, had this idea to launch uh, the first venture capital fund in India that would focus on on agriculture and food that would focus on the you know twenty percent plus of the economy that's that's ag related and the fifty percent of the population that is that is rural and this is a, at a time where very bluntly no one was doing that right that was way way out of um, focus for for most for most generalist VCs that were focused on the Indian consumer story and the top quartile of, of urban consumers. And we were pioneers in the space, managed to raise a first fund, you know, uh, of, of some 260 crore, roughly, I guess, 30 plus million dollars and went from there. So I'm very interested because, you know, you know, like you said, the ag space takes up so much in India. And I know this was like the flip cart times in India. So everyone's focused there. So why, even though that's the case, why, was, why wasn't anyone thinking that this takes up such a large part of our economy? It's still based on old practices. It has to be disrupted by tech. How come it was only you in such a large country that thought of that? Um, look, I, I, I will give due credit to the people that inspired us. Um, Janesh came out of Nexus Venture Partners, and Nexus actually did kind of two agri-deals uh, during his time there. So, so I was sort of the agribusiness guy coming out of Goldridge. Janesh was the VC guy coming out of Nexus. And so there was a little bit of a precedent, um, not much of one. And, and those... And that was a weird time in Indian VC that those deals had gotten done because um, Nexus was Nexus was definitely contrarian in doing that. Um, like they invested in Sumantur and Sohanlal, and um, but like kind of no one else was. And they were certainly a generalist fund that was just a, a small fraction of the stuff that they were investing in. Why weren't people focused on the opportunity? Um, I guess I would say a couple things. One, it was crazy early and uncertain and the pipeline was small the idea that that rural and agricultural india could be transformed seemed radical at the time and i'll be the first one to admit it we probably were a few years early right 
it's, it's, I, I think I'm very happy that we were able to raise a second fund because now agribusiness, agritech is a very, very, I, I won't say it's a core theme for generalist VCs, but all generalist VCs are looking at it. When we started, we were beyond peripheral. And, you know, honestly, if I could do it all over again, I probably would start two years later because I think um, a lot of things changed. When we got started in 2011, 12, right, the overall startup ecosystem was much smaller. The quality of entrepreneurs coming in was not nearly as good as today. It was, you know, being an entrepreneur in those days was, was radical. And so you didn't get, you got crazy smart people, but not necessarily a huge talent pipeline, right? Everything was idiosyncratic. Like in contrast to now where, you know, if we go to the IITs, if we go to the IIMs, literally the best and the brightest are going into startups. That was not the world we inhabited in 2011, 12. Right? The best and brightest went into McKinsey, Goldman, or HUL. And, and we've seen a huge change. We've seen a change in the size of the startup ecosystem. We've seen a change in the, in the kinds of people that want jobs there, the kinds of founders. So, you know, honestly, if I could do it over again, I probably would have started Omnivore in 2014 um, because the first two, three years were really lonely and hard and but you can't change the past and and we certainly made the best of it so i i really i really like that point that you were saying you know you, you've come out openly saying that you know i wish i would have started two years early two years later sorry can you can you talk about those two years what, what was it like was it tough to get like you were saying good startups was it tough to get it was funding? tough to get it was tough to get. I actually think we were lucky because we were able to get funding. But I think, um, honestly, the, the quality, when we started, the difference between a startup and kind of a fast-growing SME was a little bit blurry, right? So, so we saw a lot of innovative companies that were promoter-driven, but they were more traditional promoters than you know necessarily what you would think of as a startup team and and we made some mistakes doing deals like that that which to be clear i think other vcs at the time also made similar mistakes but um definitely the what we all think of as startups right there weren't that many of them in in the agritech space and there were certainly struggles with finding co-investors, right? The entire business model that, that you could make work in 2012 was very different from what you could make work in 2020, right? We looked at a lot of product companies because that's where there seemed to be more innovation as opposed to service businesses, which, which seemed to have higher burn and, and sort of less of a path to, to scale and exit. Um, certainly the digital opportunities were very different. They were largely B2B as opposed to kind of business to farmer. It was just, it was a different era. It was a long time ago, honestly, from a, you know, I mean, it was only, it was only eight years, but it was kind of a lifetime in terms of, you know, there were no smartphones, right? Only, only rich people in urban India had smartphones in 2012. 
right? There were, you know, there was no 4G. Rural connectivity was shit. And, you know, probably 1% of farmers might have had a smartphone or less. And so the, the kinds of business models that you could back then were very different from, from what ultimately have, you know, we've seen over the last few years and those, you know, and the things over the last few years have, have scaled hugely. If I look back to some of the stuff that we did then, uh, some of it's turned out quite well. We, we invested in an aquaculture IoT company called Eruvaca that's now selling all over the world, allowing farmers to manage and monitor aquaculture farms um, with, with, IoT, uh, with IoT devices. Eruvaca is great. It's based in Vijayvada. I think we were definitely the first VCs to ever do a deal in Vijayvada. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's in coastal Andhra. It's the center of aquaculture in India. Very agricultural, uh, small city. And, and that company, you know, now has Nutreco as a global strategic partner. We, we, backed, um, we backed Mitra, which uh, was making... Um, essentially precision sprayers and had a INSEAD alumnus founder, Devnit Bajaj, who's uh, now gone on to be the head of corporate development at uh, Dream11. Um, but uh, right, different path. But, um, you know, that's now been acquired by Mahindra as their sprayer division. So we've definitely, we did some good stuff, right? We, we backed SkyMet in the weather space that kind of most people know it's a consumer brand and frequently in the papers. We back Stellaps and Dairy Tech, right, which has scaled hugely. But but we definitely also made some mistakes. And, and we backed some founders that were more traditional businessmen as opposed to real startup founders. Um, and and we, you know, and we backed some stuff that honestly, in retrospect, was more of an SME than a startup. You did some amazing things, but you may not have known it at the time, right? Because like you said, it takes time for these things to come to fruition. But what was your thinking like at the time? Because you left a great job and you started this VC and you're like thinking, wait, actually the pieces aren't coming together the way that I thought they were. Was your thinking I don't think we saw. I don't think we saw that at the time. I think okay. what we saw at the time, right? Because the, the, the trick about VC is you really only know if you did the right thing like three or four years later right? Mm. It, it's like flying a plane with no windows, right? It, it's, mm -hmm. it's, there's a big lag effect in everything that you do. And that's what makes it um, stressful, but also fun. I think we saw that there were innovative entrepreneurs building cool shit. And we backed them and some of them worked and some of them didn't, right? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think part of the issue was then you know, VC is, is, is very much based on pattern matching for better or worse. Okay. And that's part of the problem of VC, right? Is, is there's so much pattern matching that you wind up with a very strong bias on the part of VCs towards the type of founders they like, the kinds of business models they like. Everything is the X of Y, the Uber of something else. Okay. And so Today, we have built the heuristic models that allow us to pattern match in the agri-tech space. But in 2012, we didn't have those, right? We, we were, Janesh and I were, were, you know, 2012, 
right? I was in my early 30s, okay? Uh, Janesh is like one year older than me. We were first-time investors. You know, we invested in the best stuff that we saw, but our, our pattern matching wasn't that strong back then. And, um, and frankly, I think in some ways that worked. Like if we had super strong pattern matching, we never would have backed Yarubaka, right? I love Sriram, the founder there, but he's this, you know, very laconic um, kind of stoic Telugu guy who had some global work X, but didn't have co-founders, crazy early. Um, you know, I don't think that that pattern matching would have worked for him, but that's turned out to be one of the best companies we've ever invested in. Right. Um, I think today we have stronger pattern matching than we used to. Right. We kind of know, I, I can't say we, we know what's going to work and what's not. We certainly don't. We take the best, um, you know, we do our work, we do our due diligence, we dig into things, but we certainly have formed theories and theses and, you know, and frankly, there's just much more pipeline for us to bounce that against. And there's the last eight years that have taught us kind of what works and what doesn't. So, you know, back then it was, it was very much flying blind. <laughs> that, that's, that must've been such a crazy experience because, and, and I want to ask you one last question on this point. Um, so I don't hammer too much on it, but like, what was your like real like thinking behind risk and doubt? Did, did that creep into your mind or were you, pretty confident at the time because it's the same as any entrepreneur going to start any business. And in fact, starting a VC may be even more stressful because there's so many stakeholders. So what was your thinking I about that? I oftentimes joke with entrepreneurs about that. I'm like, listen, when you go pitch a venture fund, they definitely invest in startups. When we pitch family offices mm -hmm. or endowments, they may or may not invest in venture. So yeah. I have definitely, I have definitely raised money or tried to raise money from people who were just like, I don't even invest in your asset class. Why are you here? And mm -hmm. some, I, I, I remember once pitching a family office in Madurai, okay? And I literally like getting to Madurai back in like 2012 wasn't so easy, right? Um, and I like waited all day and I got to like this, this um, the promoter's offices. And then he did that very typical traditional promoter thing of like making me wait for four hours, okay? And, and, and at the end of that meeting, right, at the, and then, sorry, at the beginning of that meeting, I, I'm sitting there and, and he's like, you know, we mostly invest in debt funds. <laughs> I have thought about possibly investing in equity mutual funds. What do you do again? Wow. Yeah. So, um, so I think that gives us uh, good empathy for, for what startup entrepreneurs go through and how goddamn miserable it is. Um, you know, that was a, that was just a very, very different time. We, mm -hmm. we really, at that time, our thesis was, we know agri, we know what is innovative and not innovative. So back the innovative stuff and everything should work out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think now our thesis is very different. It's cool. We know agri. We know what's innovative and not innovative. We also know what other investors will co-invest in, right? So we know what will be able to raise capital and what won't. And, and unfortunately, 
Um, back then, we we there were there weren't really people to syndicate with because other generalist VCs weren't interested in the space. So that wasn't so much of a consideration. I think now that is definitely a consideration. We we kind of know what is in scope and out of scope for generalist VCs, impact investors, and strategics. And so that certainly becomes a limiting factor in, in the kind of stuff that we invest in. We also have stronger theories about what good entrepreneurs look like, what their background should be. Um, we, we used to back a lot of solo entrepreneurs and increasingly um, that is the exception to the rule. We continue to do it. Jaisim Rao, who runs Tartan Sense, which is India's, um, well, I mean, India's largest agri-robotics startup, but, but one of the most innovative agri-robotics startups in the world, the whole freaking team, right, came out of um, Carnegie Mellon. But the founder, it was, it was started by a solo founder. And, and increasingly, we avoid solo founders. We've kind of learned that it's a very, very, very hard thing to run a startup by yourself. My um, super nerdy analogy is if you've seen the movie Pacific Rim, I have in order to operate the giant um, monster-killing robots, you need two people to psychically graft on because it would overload one person's brain. That's basically a startup, mm. right? Is it's it's better to have teams and and have teams of co-founders as opposed to solo founders. But we still back Jaisima. He's he's incredible. But we've we've developed these you know we've developed these frameworks that that we now apply and and we of course we we violate them we create exceptions to them but we know we're doing that whereas back then you know none of that was there awesome and and you mentioned that you know along these lines to create these frameworks there may there must have been a mistake or two in them right oh, yeah. absolutely <laughs> so can you can you go into one of the mistakes without without um, the name or anything like that, but kind of what did you learn from that mistake and how, how can founders potentially avoid that kind of similar mistake when they're going down their own journey? So I think, again, probably the biggest mistake that we made was backing SMEs that thought they were startups. Okay? You know, it, it's, it's like... You, you're you're backing um, you're, you're backing a a penguin that thinks it can fly. Okay. Okay. It's like no, I have wings. I should be <laughs> able to fly. Um, nobody, you can't fly. Why why couldn't those penguins fly? Okay. Number one, most of them were addressing market sizes that were too small. Okay, they were what I would characterize as niche plays rather than venture backable plays. Okay, so that was one issue. Because they were too small, other investors would not see that potential and hence they wouldn't be able to raise enough money. Right? And so it was kind of this, this self-fulfilling thing where, you know, you'll hear this a lot, right? Like VCs are always like, I want a TAM of at least a billion dollars, ideally 10 billion, okay? Yeah, fine. We backed a lot of stuff that probably had a TAM of like 100 million, 150 million. And so I think we didn't understand that that TAM was as important back then. And, you know, as a result, those companies couldn't raise money. And so 
they, it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like they, they were SMEs. They were penguins that thought they could fly. And then ultimately they couldn't raise money. And so they stayed SMEs, right? I, I always, and, and this is something that, that you, you will have heard this on, on other uh, webinars with me. I am very particular now that, that people need to understand that venture capital is jet fuel, okay? It is jet fuel. It is a product. That product works with a certain kind of vehicle, right? If you take jet fuel and put it into, you know, a Maruti Swift, you will blow that fucking car up, okay? If you take jet fuel and put it in a Lamborghini, you will still blow that fucking car up. If you put it in a plane, it flies, right? And so I think some of these startups that we put jet fuel in were Marutis and some were even Lamborghinis. And thankfully we also backed a bunch of airplanes. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't get that. They're like, well, obviously I should raise venture capital for my total lifestyle business right? That, that doesn't have a huge TAM. And, and, and that's just going to be the worst, right? Because the VC's expectations of that business are insane. And the entrepreneur is never going to be able to deliver on that. Right? I see that I see that with a lot of, for example, consumer food businesses in India, right? Like consumer food in India doesn't yet have a single, right? Amazing I'm talking more FMCG, a CPG, mm -hmm. right? As mm -hmm. opposed to Zomato and Swiggy, okay? But if you look at the consumer food segment, there have been tons of startups. They've raised shit tons of money and their sales are all mediocre, okay? None of them were, were really airplanes, right? Some of them were shitty little, I mean, to be clear, I've, I, I like Maruthis. Um, I've owned mm -hmm. them. <laughs> but um, some of them were Marutis. I don't want to throw shade on Marutis. Um, and some of them were sports cars, but none of them could fly. And, and so I think entrepreneurs have to be very, very cognizant to only take VC into kind, the kinds of businesses that really can take off, that can go up and to the right, right? If, if you're doing some sort of niche branded food play, you should think very hard about whether it is suitable for venture capital. And I understand that the alternative sources of capital are weird and complicated and scarce, right? Like I get that. I get that like VCs will be like, no, of course we'll give you money. And we think this is huge. And then you're going to fucking disappoint them. Okay. Like you will, you inevitably will. Your market size probably isn't big enough, right? You're not going to be able to scale the way they want. And um, it, there are very, very few exceptions to that in consumer food. So what does a VC and even a startup for that case, when, when you do buy a Maruti as a VC, it's, it's very uncomfortable, right? Because you have startups that are probably doing very well and that deserve your time, but then you have this Maruti here that you've invested in. And do you look at it as like a sunk cost or do you still continue to put your time and energy into it? Um, you put some, you have to manage your time and energy. You mm -hmm. continue to put some time in it uh, and energy, mostly focused on getting an exit. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
and and oftentimes uh, to be very blunt that's what we put more that's what we put new employees on right it's like hey see if you can turn the maruti into a lamborghini okay you ain't going to get it to fly but see if you can get it to drive faster and see if you can get an exit and and so but everyone has those right it's it's not that um it's not that generalist vcs don't have things that don't work out and and plenty of them discover that they had that they invested in a maruti right mm-hmm. you don't want you really want to put vc is is a game where you really make your money with your exceptionally great startups and so you want to put most of your time and effort there with with the things that are absolute wrecks you you only put as much time as as makes sense and actually you wind up putting a bunch of time in the stuff in the middle right and 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 that's and that's okay because sometimes you can turn those 2x's into 3x's and 4x's and that can really change your fund um but for the stuff that's a just absolute disaster didn't work out just focus on getting a fast exit. I I think that really goes back to your point of startups should be very careful and think about whether their business is VC ready Backable. or VC needed. Backable, so I, yeah. I, I sat there in in February in Mumbai with um this beverage startup, right? And and this beverage startup is self-funded by by these two guys and it's doing great. I like the product. But I was like you shouldn't take VC into this. like you'd be crazy you will you know be pushed to grow your company at unsustainable levels that it will never be able to grow at because it's super niche and you will lose control of it and ultimately you're not going to make any, like no one's going to be happy you're not going to be happy vc's not going to be happy right i and and they're like but but like we can't get capital any other way and i was like yeah i i get that like i get that bank loans like banks in india are happy to throw 5000 crore after 5000 crore into distressed shitty conglomerates right that that are 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 collapsing because no one ever gets fired for that especially in in, in PSU banks um but god forbid they should lend a small entrepreneur 1 crore um so i know that's a challenge but i was like look go raise money from family offices and be very clear that this is patient capital right that that you're going to build something sustainable at a sustainable rate of value and that over time as you grow you will eventually like when you put out 3 years of profits you'll be able to grow with bank debt right but go find investors that are aligned to your vision and that don't have closed end funds that are supposed to deliver double digit returns and will demand an exit after 6 years Mm-hmm. That, that that's i i completely get it and i imagine how tough it is for an entrepreneur to hear that because they're thinking they're thinking like you know my startup's going to the moon it it can do all of this i, I you know i'm sure that they're contrarian to when you're saying that but it's something that they really need to think about because it can really change their business and i've read so much about different startups that have just have to change even flipkart for example they've had to change yeah. everything they do because of the massive amount of funding that have come in I think I think we need to make a distinction, right? We use this term entrepreneurship, okay? And we use it interchangeably between small business, SME, and startup. 
And, and this is something that, that I'm constantly, I get involved in a lot of government related stuff. Like I'm on the Maharashtra State Innovation Society and I'm always telling, right, these IAS officers that are trying to boost entrepreneurship. I'm like, you, you have to decide really, you have to understand that these are two different things, right? That, that startups are SMEs, okay? They start as SMEs, but SMEs, not all SMEs are startups. Right. And if the goal is to have more entrepreneurship because it's job creating, right? Actually, SMEs generate way more jobs than startups do. Right. You think about like WhatsApp with its 18 employees at exit. Okay. Like SMEs really generate lots of jobs in India specifically. And we should be encouraging that, but we, we need to understand that they're two separate things and they need to be managed separately. And we should be encouraging young people to, to take up entrepreneurship and middle-aged people to take up entrepreneurship, but not everything is a startup. Not everything has the potential to be a startup and not everything should be a startup. And I, I kind of want to switch a little bit into a, a little bit of a COVID topic because we're talking about pushing young and middle-aged entrepreneurs to go out and do it. But it's a crazy time right now. And, you know, when I'm thinking about what's going on right now, obviously it's crazy. There's so much loss. There's businesses are down, industries are down. But at the end of it, I see a light at the end of the tunnel in the sense that might the be a world train. is <laughs> a train. There might be a train, but the world is, is going to be different. And there's going to be so much that's different. The pollution has gone down. Maybe there's going to be more focus in that space. You know, the ag space is, we're seeing that, you know, everybody needs food. Are we sustainable with food? Are are, our systems in place to be able to, you know, deliver food properly in in the case of a crisis? So there's so much that's going to change. Would you, as a VC, both invest or even recommend people to potentially start a business in this crazy time? Um, yeah, but with a bunch of qualifiers, remember, like, historically, it's during downturns and recessions that that the best startups are built, okay, because the opportunity cost drops like a goddamn rock, right? Like, if you're out of work, and you can't find a, a job that you like, and, you know, you've got some you've got enough cushion that you can go build what you want to build do it right because right now like there are no good jobs right it's not like it's not like lots of people are out there hiring for 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 great opportunities um so i i would i would say i mean obviously it really depends on people's situations i think in general right now we will see a lot of people choose to start up because because they're out of work um, or because they they just understand that like, you know, probably normal careers for the next few years are, are, are a mess, right? If you, you know, if you're sitting there in your first year of business school right now, of a two-year business school, right? I mean, hopefully we'll get a vaccine and shit will get back to normal. But, but it's definitely a time to think pretty hard about what you really want in life because the, the corporate career you dreamed of entering might not be there. And, and so 
The qualifiers that I would also add are, are well, are many, but, you know, definitely work on your ideas, work on your products, work on your inventions and business models. And, and you might not have to quit your job to do that, right? We all used to commute, right? All of us in India used to commute like what, two to three hours a day. Guess what? You don't have to do that anymore, right? Take those two to three yeah. hours and, and go dedicate them to working on, on the cool thing that you're building. The one thing to, to be cognizant, I mean, the other thing is that investors are still investing, right? Like we, we did an unannounced seed stage deal about two months ago. We're going to announce it in a couple months. It's in stealth mode right now. We're closing another seed stage deal, right? Like, like I know it's, it's so goddamn ridiculous. I've heard it a million times. We're open for business, right? But no, genuinely we are. And um, I, I think there is certainly still capital. I think institutional capital is still there. I think a lot of angels are spooked um, and are probably sitting on the sidelines uh, relative to say a year or two ago. But I, I, I think as long as your personal situation allows it, this is as good a time as any to start something. That, that, that's really incredible to hear. And it, it's, a, it's a cool bit of optimism, you know, for people who have lost a job or for people who are looking to do different things. You know, it, it'll be really encouraging to hear that. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of the Stockdale Paradox. Right, like that—that that is one of my guiding mantras. Are you, are you familiar with it? No. What is the paradox? Okay. So, Admiral—I uh, think it was James Stockdale—was the senior most uh, military officer shot down over American military officer shot down over Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Okay, he was a high-ranking officer. He was a naval flight aviator, and he had his plane blown out from under him. And he found himself in the Hanoi Hilton, okay? That was the big POW camp that the North Vietnamese had for American, um, primarily American uh, pilots that they shot down. And it was torture and brutality, and it was pretty shitty. And John McCain was there, for example. Um, and he was tortured for years before he got out and kept in captivity. And and so the, the Stockdale paradox is, is what he developed when he got out, when he, I think he was at Stanford um, at, you know, a couple of years after, after his release, after the war ended. And he said, look, we saw three types of people in this prisoner of war camp. We saw people who came in and they were super optimistic and they're like, no, we're gonna be home by Christmas. Well, then Christmas came, they weren't home. Six months later, Lots of them died. They just, they, they had too much hope, but it wasn't realistic hope. And it broke their hearts and they died. And then there were another group uh, of pessimists, right? People who came in and they're like, my life is over. I'm going to die in this goddamn hole. And they died really fast because they had nothing keeping them alive. And he said the Stockdale paradox was, was his recognition of the group that survived. They were people that understood that the status quo was goddamn awful, that the present sucked, but that the future was uncertain, that this would not always be the way it, it, it was at that time. Like, I'm in a prisoner of war camp. I can't change that. 
but I don't think I'm going to be here in five years or 10 years. I will not always be here, right? So it's having a brutally clear understanding of the terrible present while acknowledging that the future is uncertain and possibly going to be good. And so I think that we're in one of those moments right now. The present sucks. People are dying left and right, right? All of our lives have been disrupted. The economy is disrupted. People are out of work, right? It's particularly hard in India. It's not always going to be like this, but it may get worse before it gets better. And we should all be very clear-eyed about that. Mark, I, I want to I wanna end on that point because that was so, so powerful. You know, there is so much going on and there's so much bad, but like you said, there, there's a reason potentially to be optimistic. It may get worse, but there is something at the end of all of this. So, Mark, I really want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it and learned a lot from this. Um, look, we're, we're, all, uh, we're all in this goddamn mess together. And um, I, hope, uh, I hope some great businesses are built during this time. I hope reforms that, that are long delayed in society will, will finally reach fruition. And, and I hope on the other side of it, we can build a better world. So uh, thanks for having me here. Amazing, amazing. And to everybody who's listening, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Make sure to leave some comments. If you guys have any questions for Mark, make sure to let me know. I'll forward them along to him. And, and if you guys, you know, uh, would like, please leave a subscribe because that would be really helpful to grow the channel. So definitely subscribe. Yes. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you everybody for listening. See you guys in the next one.